James 2. I'm excited to be back in the pulpit this morning after a couple of week break and get back into James. I've really had a good time going through James and studying James and preaching James. I hope you are too. We'll pick up this morning in James chapter 2 verses 1 to 13. But by way of introduction, keep your thumb at James 2 and turn to Matthew 23, please. Please turn to Matthew 23. I want to read the first seven verses of of Matthew chapter 23 to springboard the point that James is going to communicate to us this morning. Matthew 23, and I'm going to read verses 1 to verse 7. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and said to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries. Just let me stop right there. A phylactery, anybody not know what that is? A phylactery? It's okay. I didn't know either. I like to look it up. If you Google it, don't do it now. Do it later. But Google it. Click on images, and it's literally a little box strapped on their head with leather straps. And, it, and, they, and the Jews did that because it was an overly literal interpretation of an Old Testament law. Okay, So picture a man with a box strapped to his head with a leather strap. That's what a phylactery is. And they lengthen their tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. In those seven verses, Jesus summed up who the Pharisees were. They were very religious men, very strict men, very zealous men, very proud men, and very polished men on the outside. These men believed themselves to be servants of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, carrying with them the authority of God according to the law of Moses. They were feared, esteemed, and honored by committed Jews as they were considered experts in the law or the Old Covenant. But there was one Jew who was never at all impressed with this elite group of men. That one Jew just so happened to be God in the flesh. Our Lord Jesus, he held nothing back as he boldly confronted the phoniness and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he called them a son of hell, blind guides, fools and blind men, whitewashed tombs, serpents, and a brood of vipers. You can read about all that in Matthew 23, the rest of it. So as we can see from the plain reading of Scripture, that the Jesus of the Bible had a side of him that really isn't much talked about today. 
We hear very often that he had a gentle and patient side. And he did. That's true. But when it came to the Pharisees, he demonstrated that he also had a very firm and confrontational side as well, didn't he? They earned rebukes from Jesus, these Pharisees. So, perhaps the best lesson we can learn from the Pharisees is not to be like them. But as we read in the New Testament epistles, we see over and over again that Old Covenant Phariseeism carried over into the New Covenant era. Also known as the Church Age, the Christian Church. Christians, truly born-again Christians, wrestle and struggle intensely with the same vices that the Pharisees did, and that's abundantly evident in James 2, verses 1 to 13. Now flip back there and let's read that. Go back to James 2. Let's read verses 1 to 13. I want to get the whole unit of thought here. James writes to his Jewish brothers, Jewish believers in Christ. My brethren, do not hold to your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is, in, who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down by my fool's footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery and do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This message and the next message in two weeks after Easter is entitled, How to Become a New Covenant Pharisee. How to Become a New Covenant Pharisee. Today's part one, verses one to four. And the next two, in the next two weeks, we will cover verses to 13. So this morning, the passage I just read, we, dis- we, we are going to discover that the Jewish believers whom James was writing to were seemingly just as concerned, like the Old Covenant Pharisees, 
with outward appearances to a fault. And James confronts their new covenant Phariseeism head on. In the text before us, in this message and the next, I want you to take note of how to be a new covenant Pharisee. There are five steps. Five steps to becoming a new covenant Pharisee. Obviously, it's bad, right? You don't want to become a Pharisee. But unless you are not aware of this text, not aware of how Jesus viewed the Pharisees, it's easy to become one. If you don't want to become the kind of religious person that Jesus rebuked in Matthew 23, or the kind of Christian that James deals with in this passage, you need to be aware that you do not follow these steps. Okay? The first step to becoming a new covenant Pharisee is to be partial. If you want to become a new covenant Pharisee, be partial. In verse 1, it says, My brethren, do not hold your faith and our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. This, this verse, it's the main point of the entire section of verses 1 to 13. Which means verses 2 to 13 flows out of verse 1. So we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning hammering down what James means and what he's getting at in this whole section. Look at verse 1. It says, do not hold your faith. Here we see another imperative. It's a command. It's a rule. Or in this case, uh, it's something very specific that we are forbidden to do. Which is to say, a failure to comply is sin. We must not. We must never live out our faith in Christ with partiality. Or, as James puts it, with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, what is personal favoritism? Well, the Greek word translated favoritism means to make judgments about people based on external appearance. To make a judgment about someone based on external appearance. In the current context, of course, James applies this principle to differences in dress that reflect contrasting social and economic situations. But, as one commentator noted, the Greek word here is plural, carrying the idea of acts of favoritism, which helps us understand that this prohibition against favoritism has a wide-range application. We are not to make judgments about people based on any external factor, whether it be dress, whether it be color of skin, whether it be any general physical appearance. Now, I want to point something out, though. Notice the qualifier that I said in that statement, external factor. Now, we'll get to this later in the exposition, but it's important to highlight, I don't at all mean to convey that we're not to judge. We are to righteously judge people based on what? Their character, not their looks. To judge somebody based on their appearance or social status, that's ungodly discrimination. Which is another word for favoritism. Discrimination was the problem among James' readers. 
just like it was with the Pharisees in Jesus' time. According to verses 2 to 4, they acted like Pharisees by giving special treatment to rich people in their assembly. And James is calling them out on it. Why? Why spill so much ink over this issue of personal favoritism, specifically with regard to rich people? Because it's wrong. It's wrong. We'll find out just how wrong it is later. But listen, favoritism has always been foreign to God's being. Favoritism has always been foreign to God's being, and he commands his people to emulate that sort of impartiality. When men are partial, bad things happen. Perhaps the best way to illustrate the danger and repercussions of personal favoritism is the story of Joseph and the famous coat of many colors. Remember that story? When was the last time you read that? Well, guess what? You're going to read it this morning. Turn to Genesis 37, please. Turn to Genesis 37. I want you to follow along with me. We're going to go through this. You, don't, you guys don't get that much Old Testament from me, so you're going to get some this morning, okay? Genesis 37. Go ahead and turn there. As you're turning there, I need to say that I find it very interesting how often this story is caricatured or distorted. In children's books and many Sunday school curricula, the quote-unquote coat of many colors is presented as a happy or positive event. However... It's not. Even recently, a movie aired on primetime TV called Dolly Parton's Coat of Many Colors. You guys ever seen that? Did you see that advertised? Well, it's an old country song too, so maybe you heard of it. Well, this, this, her, this movie, Coat of Many Colors, it was a, a tale of how her mother made for her a coat of many colors, which was supposedly inspired by the biblical narrative. And it just reminded her of her mother's sacrificial love. So not only in the church is this story typically caricatured, but now even more so in the culture it is. The code of many colors that we read about in Genesis proved to be, listen, one of the gravest and most heinous parental mistakes known to man. And I, I don't exaggerate. That wasn't a hyperbolic statement. And you'll see why. We're going to quickly read through Genesis 37, and we're, we're doing this because I want you to see, if, especially if you're a parent, listen, I want you to see how evil and dangerous and harmful being partial is. Let's pick it up in verse, chapter 37 of Genesis, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. Stop right there and just think about that. Can you imagine being a son with siblings and you know full well that your father loves, the, loves your brother more? Can you imagine living in a household like that? Joseph's brothers did. Why? Because he was the son of his old age? 
And here's how he made this love known. Here's how he made this favoritism put on display. He made for him a very colored tunic. There's a coat of many colors. We get the, the coat of many colors from the King James Version. The NAS says a very colored tunic. The NIV says ornate robe. It was a special tunic given to Joseph as a visible sign that he was esteemed above his brothers. So it was like today, like putting a t-shirt on that says, hey, my daddy loves me more than my brother. That's basically what, what, was, what was signifying. It also signified that Joseph was Jacob's choice to be the future head of the clan. Big no-no. Back then, it was expected that the firstborn would have that honor. You got little old Joseph taking this, taking this honor from his older brother. And now, what was the consequence, what was the ramifications of this overt manifestation of favoritism? It's going to get messy. Let's, let's pick up in verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so get this. I hope, I hope, I hope you have a Bible open. I want you to see this. They hated him. They hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Wow. The text says that they hated him. They were so filled with bitterness that they despised their own flesh and blood. But it doesn't stop there. Their hatred only festers. Back to verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more. See the escalation? For his dreams and for his words. Verse 9. Now he had still another dream. And related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Sounds a little cocky, doesn't it? Verse 10. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Oh, but now we see a new emotion in the text. He be, the brothers became jealous. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now these dreams were in reality, they were a foreshadow. If remember the story, we could fast forward, we're not going to turn there, but we could fast forward to Genesis 42 verse 6 and see that they did unknowingly bow down to Joseph. Genesis 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. 
He was the one who sold to all people of the land. He was the most powerful man on the planet. He sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Verse 9, then Joseph remembered the dreams with which he had about them. Back to chapter 37, verse 12. Then his brothers went to the pasture of their father's flock in Shechem. Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to them, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. Drop down halfway to verse 17. Now Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Verse 18. When they saw him, when his brothers saw Joseph coming towards them from a distance, they plotted against him to put him to death. His brothers hated him so much, they were so jealous, it led to a plan to murder their own brother. Stick with me here. We're going somewhere. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, A wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. So they hated him. They envied him. They plotted murder. And then they conspired to lie. Whew getting very intense here. And now at this point, I want you guys to, to remember something. What did this all start with? It all started with the infamous coat of many colors. It all began with a simple act of genuine favoritism. The backdrop behind one of the most sinister and horrific acts we see in Scripture is all from the coat of many colors. The tunic was given with sinful motives. And then Joseph wore it in front of his brothers. And then it led to them wanting to kill him for it. A little different than the Sunday school version, isn't it? But that's not the last we hear of this tunic. It keeps showing up. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit and in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So Reuben, the big brother, his conscience was completely not seared. And he secretly intends to rescue Joseph. But guess what? He was too slow. He failed to act quickly enough. Verse 23, So it came about when Joseph reached his brother's they stripped Joseph of that tunic. The very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Just as a side note, when I feel like I'm having a bad day, 
I just think to myself, at least I'm not sitting in the bottom of a dry well right now. For what it's worth. Verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal. Just like a casual meal. We just planned to murder our brother. Let's go eat now. And as they raised their eyes and looked, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, Now what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So evidently, Judah... His conscience was, was beginning to be bothered, too, by the thought of murdering their brother in cold blood. Verse 28. Then some Midianite traders passed by, and they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, so think. Think about the scenario. Joseph is hated, envied, Stripped of this cloak of many colors. Thrown into a dry well. And sold into slavery by his own family. He was having a really bad day, wouldn't you say? Verse 29. Now Reuben, remember the guy who wanted to execute his own covert mission, uh, a rescue mission. Returned to the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. That was just a, uh, a way, an a, a way, a external way of expressing, expressing intense grief and sorrow. Now, why do you think Reuben reacted this way? I don't want to give him too much credit here, because he was in on it from the beginning. I think Joseph, Reuben was having some ungodly sorrow here. Because he knew that as the oldest brother, he would directly be held accountable and responsible for what happened. If Israel learned the truth. So what's he to do? He asked that very question in verse 30. He returned to his brother and said, that boy's not there. As for me, where am I to go? I can't go back home and face my dad. I can't tell them that I stood idle while I let you people throw them into the well and sell them into slavery like a piece of pottery. So what's he to do? Well, he felt like he had no other option but to join in on the scheme to rid the world of Joseph. So they concoct a fake story to cover up their crime, and it involves what? The coat. <laughs> Still not done with the coat. The coat still has a huge role in this story. Verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it. And said, it is my own son's tunic. A wild beast devoured him. Surely Joseph has been torn to pieces. Whew. 
Now, what's interesting about this narrative is the irony. Remember the great deceit of Jacob? Back in Genesis 27, he openly deceived Isaac, his father, and pretended to be Esau so that he could obtain his father's blessing of the birthright. Remember that? Now the tables have turned, haven't they? Now he is the one being deceived by his own sons. Now let's see his response to this breathtaking news of his favored son's death. Verse 34. So Jacob tore his clothes and he put a sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. This was more than just mourning. This was a deep depression. This was a sorrow that could not be overcome. And if you're a parent, you can understand that. You can understand what it would be like to lose a child. I've, I have a good friend who had to do that. It's one of those things that you can never begin to comprehend unless you've experienced it. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Which is to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cry and wait till I die. He missed his favorite son so much. That's favoritism, folks. It's really, really bad. Nothing good can come from it. The one who is favored will become arrogant and puffed up. The one who is not will become bitter, hateful, and vengeful. And again, if you're a parent or even a grandparent, be extremely aware and cognizant of the propensity to have a favorite. To prefer the company of one child over the other. Be careful not to ever foster an environment where everyone knows that you love one child more than the other. And in the body of Christ, be very careful that you do not practice favoritism like the old covenant Pharisees in the time of Jesus or the new covenant Pharisees in the time of James. It is wrong, it is sinful, and the effects of it will be disastrous. The second step to becoming a New Covenant Pharisee is to be judgmental. First, be partial. Second, be judgmental in verses 2 to 4. What we see in these verses is that partial people become wickedly judgmental. And James uses an example to reveal to his readers what favoritism looks like. This example was the kind of discrimination they were engaging in. Let's, un- let's go through... And unpack these verses. Verse 2, for if a man comes into your assembly. Assembly was the place where they met for worship, instruction, and encouragement. It's the Greek word synagogue, which simply means assembly. It's similar to one of our worship services. 
He says, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring. Now, a gold ring, as you can imagine, was an emblem of upper-level Roman class or well-to-do people. Fine clothes is translated from the Greek word meaning bright and shining. It was used to describe the kingly robe placed on the shoulders of Jesus before he was sentenced by Pilate. So you have a rich man come to your assembly, and then you have a poor man in dirty or filthy clothes. One commentator said that uh, this image that James conjures up is of the typical homeless person in our day, dressed in mismatched, stained, or smelly rags. And then you pay special attention. Okay, so you have two men coming to the assembly. One looks like a very rich man. You can tell the other looks dirty and stinky. What do you do? Well, you're going to pay attention to one of them, or both of them, or neither. Let's see what happens here. He says you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes. But special attention here, it's, it's the Greek word that means to look upon, like you would stare intently at something with favor versus not even giving something a second look. I mean, we've all probably experienced that, where, like, if Russell Wilson walked in right now, I guarantee that I would probably have to just stop preaching because you'd all just be so fixed on his presence, right? Not, maybe all of you who are more holy who don't care about football. But most of you probably would be very intrigued by the sight of Russell Wilson walking in to our assembly. It's just the truth. That's what happened. But if a poor man would come into our assembly with dirty, stinky clothes, how many of us would just not even give it a second look? that's, That's the picture he's painting here. The one who is wearing fine clothes, you say, you sit in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my footstool. In other words, if they show favor to the rich man and treat the poor man with disdain, disrespect, and even contempt, what have they done? James says they have made distinctions and have become judges with evil motives. But he phrases this in a form of a question. But this question is equivalent to an assertion. Because obviously, the expected and obvious answer is yes. You have made distinctions. You have made separations among their assembly that God never intends. And we get that, don't we? We get that because we live in the 21st century and we have a Bible. We've read Galatians. We've studied Galatians 3, 20, uh, 26 to 28, which says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And then a very famous verse that's often misinterpreted. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there, which means there is no ethnic distinction in the body of Christ. There is neither slave nor free man, which means there are no social distinctions in Christ. And there is neither male nor female, 
which means there is no gender distinctions in the body of Christ because you are all one in Jesus Christ. So James is making the same point that Paul made in Galatians. The Christian faith, in the Christian faith, there is never any time any biblical warrants or excuse for separation based on the color of skin, culture, nationality, popularity, authority, position, age, sex, or any other difference you can think of. We are all members of one body for life. In the church, there are no Asians, there are no Africans, there are no Europeans, or even Americans. There's no Jew, there's no Arab, there's no blacks, no whites, no officials, nor laborers, no young, nor old, nor men, or women, or teens, or adults. We're all one. Because we all worship and are saved by the same blood of Jesus Christ. So we need to be very zealous about being careful not to make these distinctions. In the church, there are only Christians. But not only did James say that have they made distinctions or separations, they have become judges. In other words, a judge is one who has formed an opinion about someone or something. And let me reiterate that judging in and of itself per se is not sinful. We make judges all the time. Sometimes we actually do, sometimes, we actually do make righteous judgments. And that's the kind of judging we ought to do. Jesus plainly said in John 7.24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus was saying that we should exercise righteous judgment simply meaning moral and theological discernment. Okay? If I was, if I, if I, if I was guilty of some, some heinous, immoral controversy, yes. You, you, I hope you're going to judge. If I was teaching some kind of heresy, I hope you're going to be quick to judge. But we do not judge according to appearances. There's righteous judgment. But there's also rude, hypocritical, wrong, unrighteous, pharisaical judging that, if we're going to be honest, we've all done, right? And how do you know that we're employing that kind of judgment? How do you know if you are employing the wrong kind of judgment, the kind of judgment that the Pharisees always did, the kind of judgment that James' readers are employing? Well, to answer that question, all we've got to do is look at the qualifier at the end of verse 4. With evil motives. You'll become judges with evil motives. In the context here, what motive would a man have for elevating a rich man and shunning a poor man in the assembly? James says it's pure evil. Pure evil. Absolute evil. The issue here isn't poor hospitality. It's plainly evil. Let that shock you. 
He is telling believing Christians they're acting evil. The word evil here carries the idea of vicious intent that have a destructive effect. If you've been a believer for a while, you've learned the hard way that Christians can be vicious. Christians can be evil. And we don't like to use that term to describe our, our own sin very often, do we? Just because, you know, we're not Hitler, just because we're saved, doesn't mean we are free from having gross evil thinking. We need to be willing to say, go to God and say, Lord, forgive me for my evil thinking. Brother or sister, what I did was evil. Will you forgive me? Sometimes we need to say those things about ourselves. And to look at someone based on appearance alone and deciding to separate from them and scorning them is a sure way to become a new covenant Pharisee. It's a sure way to be evil. Jesus called those men snakes, broods of vipers, sons of hell, evil. And the sad reality is that there is a new covenant Phariseeism still alive and well today. It comes in many forms. I can't go through all the examples, but probably the one that maybe you're thinking of is most common in churches today, in America at least. I've experienced this. You walk into a church where all the men are wearing flashy, tight-knit suits and all the women are wearing long dresses. And you walk in and you feel like there's this unspoken rule that the style of dress equals godliness. And if you don't conform to that style of dress, then you can't be among us. However, there's other examples. How about churches that are still divided by race? There's nothing wrong with maintaining some aspect of culture. But in the church, that can't be the focus. You go into a church that's still on purpose, intently divided by race, and you might walk in and feel unwelcomed or ignored because your skin is a different color. That's evil judgment. Distinctions. This is what James' readers were doing. He calls them up in verse 1, my brethren. They were still his family. They were still members of the body of Christ, but they were acting evilly. What we see later in this text, he's going to correct them. For this morning, I only have time to cover the first two steps. If you want to be a new covenant Pharisee, you can be partial and judgmental. We saw from James chapter 2, verse 1, that partiality or favoritism and the church is forbidden by God. And we consider just how devastating it can be as we survey the life of Joseph. Now, just as a side note, Joseph has always been one of the most fascinating stories to me in the Bible. Please go home and read the rest of the story. Especially at the very end of Joseph's life. 
just the way that God worked it all out for a very important reason. And then we saw from James 2, 2 to 4, that creating separations in the church is just plain evil. And there's no other way to describe it. So be careful about being partial or being judgmental in the body of Christ. Next time we'll pick up in verse 5 and we will learn about the next few steps about becoming a new covenant Pharisee. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us a clear revelation. Help us, Lord, to reject any type of evil thinking in our minds, any type of evil actions, separations, favoritism. Help us to be a church that welcomes all who belong to you. Help us to be a church that fosters a environment of love and Christ-likeness. Help us to hate our sin. Help us to repent. Help us to be humble so that we may not become New Covenant Pharisees. We pray this in your Son's name.